As we begin, I want you to think about things that are radically different, so that when you put them next to one another, they're polar opposites. The differences get highlighted by their proximity to one another, so the process of putting them closer and closer together, even side by side, makes it easier to see the differences. So the contrast becomes evident and obvious for everyone to see. For example, just think about when you paint a room in your house. I'm not talking about touch-up paint where the new paint matches the old paint, but when you transition from one color to the next color, so from beige to blue, when you're picking out the color in the store, you can't tell one blue from the other. When you put the blue over the beige, it's evident and obvious for everyone to see. Let's brainstorm about how many things in life I like that, like people's emotions. I mean, just compare someone who is filled with faith versus someone who is filled with fear. One person is overflowing with optimism, anticipation, and excitement, while the other person can hardly get themselves out of bed in the morning, depressed, discouraged, and doubtful that any good thing will ever happen to them ever again in their life. Or how about the contrast between things that work versus things that don't work, like your car? It either starts or it doesn't start. It either drives or it doesn't drive. The heater works or the heater doesn't work. One of my cars has fantastic heat, including heated seats, which I love, whereas the other doesn't have any heat at all. Let me just tell you, there is a radical difference in the freezing cold of January between those two cars, one that is warm, one that is not. There are examples everywhere in life, two things that are radically different so that when you put them side by side, the differences get highlighted and the contrast is evident and obvious. Same is true with people. C.S. Lewis once said, how unbelievably alike have been all the great tyrants and conquerors of the world, but how gloriously different are the saints. Paul's going to remind us of that reality in the book of Titus, that we as the people of God are to live gloriously different than the world around us, remembering where it is that we've come from and what God has done in our lives. So that we might be those who are not only zealous for God, but as a result, are zealous for good works. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 1. Using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, I encourage you to pull it out. Titus is on page 998. There's also an outline right there in your bulletin. We'll walk right through that outline. Good works in the church, good works in the community, good works in summary. If you would follow along as I read Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father 
and Christ Jesus our Savior. So as we jump in, the Apostle Paul is writing to one of his disciples, Titus. But what's the purpose of the letter? Well, he tells us in verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So the background is that Paul, Timothy, and Titus evangelized the island of Crete. Then Paul and Timothy sailed to Ephesus, where Paul dropped Timothy off and continued on to Macedonia, where he sent letters back to both Timothy and Titus. That's how we have First and Second Timothy and the book of Titus. What's the goal of the letter? Well, it's to put things in place in the church, starting with a godly leadership, which is why Paul says in verse 5, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. What are they supposed to look like? Well, verse 6 says, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer or elder, as God's steward, must be above reproach. What does that look like? Well, he's not arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but in contrast, is hospitable, a lover of good, so zealous for good works, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must be above reproach in his character, but also, verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. So in summary, what are these men supposed to be like? They're supposed to be godly men who are above reproach both inside and outside the church and are able to teach the word of God. So essentially, they're godly teachers who are zealous for good works. And Paul immediately contrasts them with number two, ungodly false teachers, starting in verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Notice they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Skip down to verse 15. Look at how Paul summarizes them. He says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled, and notice, unbelieving. So these people, these men are unbelievers, meaning they're not Christians. To them, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Verse 16, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul is saying here is no different than what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, where, by the way, he's also talking about false teachers. Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. In summary, you will know them by their fruit, by their lives. Now just think about my introduction. The contrast of putting two things side by side with one another so you can see how evident and obvious the differences are. 
So in verses 5 to 9, Paul says, here's what believing teachers look like, godly men who are zealous for good works, contrasted with ungodly teachers who profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So essentially, true faith in Christ, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is never alone but always demonstrates itself in a person who is godly in their character and is zealous for good works. And that's true, not only with A, godly leaders, but that's true with B, godly believers. Look at what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, obviously, that's a comparison between him and the false teachers who profess to know God but deny him by their works. They're teaching for shameful gain. So Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Paul bookends this chapter with the exact same command in verse 15. So he contrasts, says the same thing, verse 1, and then he comes back to it, verse 15. He says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority in such a way that no one disregards you. Which is just another way of saying these things are of absolute importance. But what's so important according to Paul? Well, it's what's in the middle. It's giving people instructions on what godliness actually looks like. Starting with older men, verse 2. Chapter 2, verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Verse 3, he talks to the older women. Older women, likewise, be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Teach what is good and train, notice, the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands, so that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And in summary, Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model, a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about, notice, us. Just for clarity, who's the us? It's the church. That's who Titus needs to be teaching, the people of God. So sound doctrine, that which is holy and righteous and true from all of Scripture, which always results in a people who are zealous for good works in every area of their lives. So whether you're young or old, male or female, black or white, tall, dark, and handsome, or short, ugly, and bald, it doesn't matter. Whoever you are, if you're truly a believer in Christ, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, your faith should always demonstrate itself in good works. Which is exactly where Paul goes next. So not only does he give us, number one, the reality of good works, but number two, the reason for good works. Look at what he says in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. 
So right now, you and I, glorying in our salvation and the present age. Verse 15, while waiting for our blessed hope. So looking forward to the future. The appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That's the glory of the gospel. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that faith is never alone. It's that he redeemed us. So he might purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Could that be any clearer? That faith without works is a dead faith. It's a non-existent faith. It's a false faith. It's a faith that doesn't work because it's contrary to the word of God and the purpose of God who redeemed us specifically so that we might be a people who renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives right now in the present age. He redeemed us so that we might be a people who are zealous for good works. Again, just like Jesus said, Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others in such a way that they may see your good works, evident and obvious, visible, can see them, and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Paul said the same thing, chapter 2, verse 8 of Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of your works, so that you may boast, Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that faith is never alone. Why? Ephesians 2.10. Because we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So we're to be a people. The people of God who are zealous for good works, starting in the church. Starts in the church with the people of God, the way that we think, the way that we act, the way that we treat our wives, the way that we treat our husbands, the way that we raise our kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and the way that we treat one another, our relationships, specifically our love for one another. Matt Perman in his book, What's Best Next, says the regular, everyday, mundane things of life that we do by faith in Christ are good works. So when you answer emails, you aren't just answering emails, you're doing good works. When you make supper for the family, you aren't just making supper, you're doing good works. When you put your kids to bed, you aren't just putting your kids to bed, you're doing good works works. By faith in Christ, you're a person who is zealous for good works. So Paul starts with a good works in the church, specifically talking about godly leaders and godly believers, but he doesn't stop there. Instead, he moves on to be good works in the community. Follow along as I read Titus chapter 3 verses 1 to 8. Paul says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, 
passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Just to clarify, who's the them in verse 1? Paul says, remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Who's the them? It's the church. Paul is saying to Titus, A, remind the church to do good works, but specifically to submit to their governing authorities. Now, do you know who's on the throne when Paul's writing this letter to Titus in 64 AD? It's Nero, Roman emperor from 54 AD to 68 AD. I'm not sure what you know about Nero, but he's well known for persecuting Christians, burning them at the stake, using them as human torches to light up his dinner parties, covering them in animal skins and making them run until dogs chase them down and tear them apart. Horrific treatment of believers, and yet Paul's commanding the church to submit to their governing authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work. Now, praise God, we're not dealing with that right now in our country. So surely we should be those who are joyfully submitting to our governing authorities. Be clear, because Paul's saying that's what it looks like to be zealous for good works in your community. It's being people who joyfully submit to and obey their governing authorities. That's the good work that he's talking about, which are actions, right? Submit is an action. Obey is an action. Then he goes on to verse 2. And he says, remind them to speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. So it's not just your actions, but your words. Your speech. Notice how universal the language is. You are to speak evil of no one. So you're not to be slandering anyone's reputation or speaking badly about them. So let me just ask, how's that going for you? How do you do with only saying nice things, kind things about other people? How's your speech specifically during our upcoming presidential elections? What words are coming to your mouth and out of your mouth with regard to the candidates? How about your words regarding our current president, Joe Biden? Or your speech regarding our former president, Donald Trump? Are you being successful in speaking evil of no one? How about the other authorities in your life? What does your speech sound like with regard to your boss? or your parents, or your teachers, or your school administration. Again, remember my introduction. 
We should be people who live gloriously different than the world around us. In fact, it should be evident and obvious just in the way that we speak, just in the words that come out of our mouths. James 1.26 says that if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, that person's religion is worthless. Ephesians 4.4 says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place for the believer, but instead let there be thankfulness and praise to God. Paul's speaking directly about our actions and our speech. We're to be submissive and obedient. We're to follow the rule everyone learned when they were in kindergarten. That if you can't say anything nice, then don't say anything at all. But somehow in our society, that only seems to apply to kids in kindergarten, not adults. Paul says, I don't think so. But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? Instead, he goes on to say, remind them to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Again, are you hearing the universal language? Showing perfect courtesy toward all people, every person in your community. You see how that's an attitude issue. So in just two verses, he's talking about our actions, our speech, and our attitudes. Essentially, we're to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility of mind, count others as more important than ourselves, looking out, always and forever, in perfect courtesy and complete kindness for the interests of all people. Do you see how gloriously different we should be? Do you see how gloriously different we can be as a church if we actually keep these commands and live like this? I mean, if we consistently demonstrate in each of our lives godly actions, godly speech, and godly attitudes towards all mankind, how beautiful would that be? How attractive would that be? How compelling would that be to our friends and our family, our neighbors and our coworkers? And how confirming to the people who visit this church that surely God is in this place? Because that's not what the world looks like, does it? I mean, people don't submit to authority, do they? They don't follow rules. Instead, we live in a day and age and culture where people are proud to be anti-authority, railing against the government, slandering people who think differently than them, shredding anyone and everyone who says anything they don't like or appreciate. And how do they handle disagreements? Well, let's just say they don't show perfect courtesy toward all people. No, they post it on social media. Unfriend people who disagree with them, ruin reputations, gossip, slander, and send flamers as emails that light people up. And then they turn around and they call it therapeutic to justify their behavior. Do you see, it's the contrast that should make us gloriously different. Because the false teachers profess to know God, but they denied him by their works. But we as Christians should profess to know God and prove it by our works. With lives that demonstrate, confirm, and solidify our profession of faith. Living lives that are zealous for good works. And are therefore gloriously different. You know, Paul says in Philippians 2, that we are to do all things 
Again, universal language. We are to do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Do you see the radical contrast? Blameless versus crooked. Innocent versus twisted. And just think about light in a world of darkness. The contrast is radical and beautiful when one light builds upon another. In fact, we just, we just did this at Christmas Eve as we sang Silent Night, right? What happens when we sing Silent Night here? We take the candle, we turn out all the lights, we take the candle, we light the first candle from the Christ candle, we pass it out to the ushers, and then it spreads throughout the entire congregation. Light in the midst of darkness that is gloriously different. The light is gloriously different than the darkness. See how gloriously different we should be? How does that happen? Well, Paul answers that question in verses 3 to his to 7. B, a reminder of God's good work. Chapter 3, verse 3. Look at what he says. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedience, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hated one another. Not a very flattering description. Why do you think he starts there? One reason, humility. I mean, how could you ever submit to rulers and authorities, be obedient, ready for every good work, and godly in your actions if we constantly thought we were better than everyone else? How could we speak evil of no one and show perfect courtesy toward all people if we're constantly thinking everyone's an idiot who just needs to be as smart as we are to figure out that Christianity, true faith in Christ, has all the answers to living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age? That would never work. Instead, we need to be reminded constantly of where it is that we've come from so that we might be a humble people. So verse 3 is a perfect description of every single person before coming to Christ. Because we all start out living for the holy trinity of me, myself, and I, sitting on our high and mighty throne in the kingdom of self where we rule and reign foolish and disobedient, arrogant and ignorant of the reality that there is a God who created us, sustains us, and therefore deserves all of our worship, honor, and praise. So step one to living lives that are gloriously different is remembering where it is that we've come from because that's what brings humility to our hearts and motivation to our lives as we remember what God's done to bring us to this place today. Verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of this Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Can you hear how God is at the center of every single action and description listed there? It's God's goodness. 
God's loving kindness, God's mercy, and it's God's appearing that saved us. So God's work of regeneration and renewal through God's spirit being poured out on us through God's son and his glorious work on the cross. So it's wonderfully clear, isn't it? That we didn't save ourselves. We were just like everyone else in sinful humanity, enslaved to our passions and pleasures. Ephesians 2.1 says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead people don't make themselves alive, right? They're dead, all the way dead. They're not mostly dead. This isn't a line from the princess bride. No, we are all the way dead in our trespasses and sins, which means we can't concoct some secret portion to make ourselves alive. Only God can do that. Verse 5, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Salvation is a miraculous work of God. And we're given all of the wonderful details right here. Who, what, when, why, and how. So when, verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared, talking about the first coming of Christ, when Jesus took on flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son, full of grace and truth. So God's grace appeared in Jesus, the God-man who lived a sinless life, died a sinner's death, crucified dead and buried, but rose on the third day, conquering sin, death, and the devil, and appeared to over 500 people, confirming his resurrection. What did he accomplish? Verse 4, when the goodness of God appeared, he saved us. That's what God did for us in Christ Jesus, our Savior. He saved us. Oh, I pray that we never get over the glory of the gospel, the wonder of that reality that Jesus came to save us from our sins. How was it accomplished? It's so clear, isn't it? It's not because of works done by us in righteousness. So we don't earn our way to heaven. We don't make ourselves right with God, but only get there because of God's mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So yes, Christ accomplished our salvation through his finished work on the cross, but that salvation is applied to our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. Just think about all the passages in the Bible that teach that reality, including Jesus talking with Nicodemus, John chapter 3. Who can't believe what Jesus is saying about the need to be born again? But Jesus answers Nicodemus, verse 3, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. Renewal and regeneration. Or think about creation. Genesis chapter 2. Many of us are starting our new Bible reading program for the year. Many of you are in Genesis. I'm in Genesis as well. Genesis 2.7 says, God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then the language of the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5.17, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. He's a new creation. 
But that only happens when we're convicted of our sin, righteousness, and judgment, John 16, 8, through the work of the Spirit, renewal and regeneration. So salvation accomplished through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, but that salvation applied to our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. And what's the purpose? Verse 7, so that being justified, so being made right with God, by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I mean, do you understand that's the whole point of salvation? The reality that we're saved from something. We're saved from spiritual death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he saved us from spiritual death, eternal damnation, what the Bible calls hell, and then we have become heirs according to the hope and the certainty of eternal life. So those who will inherit the glories of heaven for all eternity. This is the good work that Jesus Christ has accomplished. Salvation he has accomplished and the salvation that the Spirit applies to our lives. And when we get a hold of that, it should motivate us enable us, empower us, and inflame every bit of our faith, what Paul calls zeal, so the passion and energy that results in good works. Zealous for good works. So if you're here this morning, and you have not yet put your faith in Christ, then I want you to listen to me very carefully. Because Jesus came for one reason. He came to save sinners, which all of us are. It says we're foolish, disobedient, led astray, enslaved to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's what it looks like to be dead in your trespasses and sins. And God's grace... His undeserved kindness is being offered to you right now so that you might not only experience salvation, but be empowered to be a person who's zealous for good works. That's the offer, that you would not experience eternal damnation, but that you would be an heir of eternal life. Don't you want life? Don't you want to be an heir? God offering you eternal life in Christ, who gave himself for you, to redeem you, to pay your debt, to give you his life, to empower you to live gloriously different, zealous for good works, which he prepared for you to walk in. That's what God offers in the Lord Jesus, to be saved from eternal damnation, to be saved to eternal life. Let me just say, if you're here this morning and that does not appeal to you, you're like, I'm just not interested in that. Sounds good, but you know, hey, there's a lot of life yet to be lived. A lot of things that I want to do that I, I want to do. I want to do these things. I don't want to submit myself to God. Oh, I'd encourage you to cry out to God to be merciful to you. I just read several passages that say you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Titus 3.5 says that he saved us. God has to work. 
God has to do a miraculous work in your life. Salvation is not like going to McDonald's and getting a Big Mac, a soda, and fries. You don't just drive up and say, I'll take a number four, and I want it right now. That's not how salvation works. Titus 3.5 says that God saved us. God offers to save you. But that's a miraculous work that he has to do in your life. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. I encourage you to cry out to God to be merciful to save you, a sinner. And he's gracious and kind to do it. And he does it for a purpose, doesn't he? wants you to be not only zealous for God, but he wants you to be zealous for good works, which he empowers by his spirit. Number C in my outline, Paul's reminder to insist on good works. Look at this wonderful statement in verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. Paul says to Timothy, I want you to insist on these things. What are the things that he must insist on? Well, it's the gospel things that he just said in verses 3 to 7, God's great work of redemption, so that those who have believed in God, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, may be careful for what? Careful for what? Careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Now, he's going to say the exact same thing just one more time. Look at how he closes a letter, verse 14. Let our people learn to devote themselves, to be dedicated, resolved, eager, and zealous. Devote themselves. Be devoted to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and to not be unfruitful. You see how that's right down the middle of the main point of this entire book of Titus, that God has purchased and purified a people for his own possession who are first and foremost zealous for God, But then as a result, knowing the good work that God's already done through the finished work of Christ on the cross and the glorious gift of the Spirit, those same people zealous for God are to be zealous for good works. Number three, good works in summary. Because Titus is a perfect example. I mean, the concern in Crete is there's people who profess to know God but deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So Paul's writing to clarify that point, right? That our works must validate our profession of faith. That the work of the gospel in our hearts must work itself out, bearing real evident, real evident and obvious gospel fruit in our lives. That we would remember where it is that we've come from, be overwhelmed by God's grace. But that's what it means to be zealous for God. So there's this constant awe and wonder about the reality given to us in Titus 3.5 that he saved us. That has to capture our heart. That has to come first. If you leave here this morning and say, boy, I need to be a person who's zealous for good works, but it doesn't start with the fact that you're zealous for God, then this will never work. This is an outflow of the reality that you're zealous for God and you're delighting in Him. That's why the Bible calls this fruit. The reality that you're grounded here, loving God, amazed by Titus 3.5, that He saved you, is what results in the good work, zealous for good works. 
the good fruit in your life. Here's my encouragement for us as we walk through Titus in January. My encouragement is that you memorize Titus 3.5, but that you actually personalize it. And you think about it this way, Titus 3.5, that God saved me. Not on the basis of deeds which I have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on me richly through Jesus Christ, my Savior. I pray that we never get over the gospel, that he saved me. May the awe and wonder of that reality motivate us encourage us and spur us on to love and good deeds so we might be a people who are transformed by grace and are zealous for good works. Listen how Matt Perman describes the relationship. He says the notion that we must obey God in order to be accepted by God would result in far less moral action, not more, because it results in less love for God. Conversely, realizing that we are holy and completely accepted by God apart from our own works through faith in Christ results in massive and radical action for good because it results in great love for God and great joy in God. As Jesus said, those who are forgiven little love little, whereas those who are forgiven much love much. Let me just ask, Are you working hard each and every day at reminding yourself of the good news of the gospel? Are you waking up in the morning and thinking to yourself before you ever get out of bed, remembering where it is that you've come from? Remembering all the things that the Lord has saved you from. Are you reading the word? Are you glorying in its truths? Are you soaking on the who, the what, the where, the when, and the how of Christ's finished work on the cross? That's where our day has to start. We have to be a people who are zealous for God if we're ever going to be a people who are zealous for good works. But when we're zealous for God... We're going to be a people who are zealous for good works. And that's going to demonstrate itself in every single area of your life. Your actions, your speech, and your attitude. So let me ask, in what areas of your life are you learning? We're to be learning to be devoted to good works. So in what areas of your life are you learning to be devoted to good works? Is it your actions? Learning how to submit to rulers? Obey authorities? Be obedient, ready for every good work. Maybe there's an area in your life where you know that you're being disobedient. You know that you're doing what you shouldn't be doing or not doing what you should be doing. Then hear God calling you this morning to repent, to turn from your sin and to walk in righteousness, to be devoted to good works. In your actions, maybe there's one specific action where you need to be devoted to good works. Or maybe it's your speech. 
Maybe you're struggling with gossip or slander, saying unkind things behind people's backs, or sharing words and information that isn't yours to share. Or maybe in one conversation, when you're around the people of God, you praise God. But then when you're around people of the world, your speech looks radically different and you sound just like the world. How do you need to learn to be devoted to good works in your speech? Letting no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear you. Ephesians 4.29. Or maybe it's not your actions. Maybe it's not your speech. Maybe for you it's your attitude. That somehow you forgot that you've been saved by grace and now you've become judge over all the earth. That if people don't meet your standards, then you have a bad attitude about it. How is God working in your life so that you would be a person who's devoted to good works with regard to your attitude? Remember where I started this morning. We should be a people who live gloriously different than the world around us. It should be evident and obvious for everybody to see. Not because we're so impressive, but because God is doing a good work in and through our lives. But that good work that he's doing in and through our lives should be evident and obvious in every area of our lives. Our actions, our speech, and our attitude. May we be those who are zealous for God, glorying in the gospel that saved us, and as a result are those who are zealous for good works, that his name might be praised in and through our lives. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we're asking that you would be doing a good work here this morning. We recognize the reality of what the Word of God teaches us, that God is the one who saves us, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. So, Lord, I pray that you would be at work, that the Spirit of God might use the Word of God to impact the people of God. Lord, I pray that there are those here this morning who are crying out that they might be saved by the good news of the gospel, forgiven of their sin and empowered to live for your glory and your honor and your praise. Lord, I pray that you would work powerfully in people's lives. And Lord, that you would cause us to be a people who never get over the good news of the gospel, that we're humble people delighting in the good work that you've done. The reality that the grace of God has appeared in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has lived a sinless life, that he's died a sacrificial death, and that we can be forgiven of our sin because of his finished work on the cross, and we can be empowered by the Spirit to live for your glory. Lord, I pray that your Spirit's moving, that we might be convicted in areas in our lives, our actions, our speech, our attitudes, where we can be those who are devoted, zealous for good works. Lord, we want to live gloriously different because we want your name to be praised. Lord, we ask that you do that good work for our good and for your eternal glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.